tap into the psychology of engagement and more. This is where we talk about life, learning, and everything in between. This is the Lifelong Podcast, a show for those of you who love to ask why. Because we're marketers. It's because we're coaches. It's because we're change makers. Each week, we dive into the big questions and explore the psychology of engagement with strategies, tactics, and special guests along the way. Now, here's your guide, the visibility hacking queen herself, Coach Molly. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to the Lifelong Podcast. I'm your host, Coach Molly from visibilityhacking.com, and as per usual, I am so glad you're here with us today. It's Thursday, which means it's time for another conversation episode. But before we dive into that, as usual, my friends, I have to remind you to find me on all of your favorite social platforms. If you want to come hang out and have a chat with me, come find me on Clubhouse. I'm at Coach Molly with an E. You can find me on Twitter, on Instagram, on YouTube, and definitely in the Visibility Hackers Facebook group. So come on over, hang out. There's lots going on. But now that we got business over, it's time to have our conversation. So grab your cup of tea, get cozy, and I'd like to introduce you to today's guest. Now, I'm part of this super secret society of people that you may have heard me talk about once in a while. And that's where I came into contact with today's guest. And I've been watching her evolve her business and grow in this incredible incredible way. So I'm so excited to have Victoria Vela here today. So Victoria, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. (laughs) (laughs) So for those of us, uh, for those of my listeners who don't know who you are, tell us a little about a little bit about yourself. Hi, well, I'm Victoria. I'm uh, born and raised in San Antonio, Texas. Uh, I kind of started out my life as a classical pianist, and that was a big chunk of my life. Uh, You know, did the Carnegie Hall thing, played with Kansas, and then uh, growing up, I started getting into psychology and worked in a neuroscience lab and started learning about marketing and like influencing, well, I don't want to say influencing, but helping facilitating the learning process, right? And I I actually did some time uh, about 13 years as a teacher. And I see a lot of similarities between the way we facilitate the way we teach and the way we facilitate the way we sell. Uh, I think of marketing as just like a really like short form version of teaching. And so um, my thing is uh, neuromarketing. So um, I am a marketing strategist for coaches, executive coaches, and we use a, uh, our custom like marketing strategy. We call it our smooth strategy, which of course is an acronym, which we can get into later. <laughs> and um, we apply neuromarketing to help you um, stand out from the crowd because we all know the coaching market is like exploding right now uh, to create an irresistible offer and to just increase your impact and influence on the world. Oh, that's fantastic. So, okay, let's start with piano playing. So how did you transition from Carnegie Hall to not Carnegie Hall? How that feels like people would work their entire lives to get on that stage and then you did it and then you moved on. What what was that like? Uh, well, I made it to Carnegie Hall when I was eight years old. <laughs> I was uh, competing like... Um, and okay, the crazy thing is I started lessons when I was five. And by the time I was eight, I competed and I won a spot to perform at Carnegie Hall. And honestly, I didn't care. 
I was not excited about Carnegie Hall. I just didn't give a crap. I was like, it's just another room. Who cares? It's just another recital. And honestly, I feel like that's the attitude you should have <laughs> if you want to get to Carnegie Hall. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, it, it's like, okay, real talk about like classical music industry. It's like uh, old Western traditions are uh, in music are all about exclusion and being only the best can participate and um, only the most wealthy can achieve, uh, you know, certain levels of education or whatever. And it's not as true today, but it's still true today. And um, just over time, the amount of work and the amount of pressure, it kind of starts to wear on you. And that's why not a lot of people can be a classical pianist because many people burn out before they get to that age where, you know, <laughs> you know, uh, I'd say the cutoff for competitions is 30. So you basically have your, once you get out of college, you have your twenties to like make it. And then, um, you know, things are definitely changing in the music industry because there's a lot more ways to stand out with like social media and everything else. But I would say I definitely burned out. And um, I kind of, you know, fell into this place where like, well, why can't other people participate in music? Like, you know, and then when I got into teaching and psychology, I started using that to create um, teaching frameworks for students with special needs because previously, like I said, in this exclusionist like tradition, those students weren't even allowed to take lessons. Like if you can't sit still for an hour straight, practice four hours a day, no music for you, you know? And so it's like, there's a whole population of kids who have these incredible strengths and they can't even, you know, experience that type of success or express themselves in that way. And so that's where I kind of like really started to shift into psychology and away from like the performance of the, uh, you know? <laughs> oh, that's fascinating. As, as a fellow teacher, I totally connect with that. And there's so many systems that are built to be exclusionary in that way. Um, I never even thought that music would be a space like that, but it makes absolute sense, unfortunately. And that's a system I'd love to continue to take down as you are doing. That's fabulous. So now let's talk about your, your neuroscience time. So what did that look like? How did you get into that and what did you do? Yeah, that actually started, came from music as well, because I took, um, I studied music in college and I took a class that was like the psychology of music. And we learned about this study where um, they found that uh, music other was the only non-biological factor that could trigger a response in the pleasure center of the brain. So it was literally like uh, drugs, sex, and rock and roll, <laughs> you know? And so, uh, that kind of changed my life. It changed my whole perspective on like what music could do. And then in inversely, how we could affect those parts of the brain with music or with teaching. And I just kind of happened to know some people and just wound up in a lab. <laughs> you know, I was a lab assistant where uh, they studied um, the, the doctor who ran the lab was a speech therapist and so they would do a lot of studies uh, on like retraining people with Parkinson's disease um, to uh, like motor learning to help them like correct issues with speaking and we participated or not participated but we <laughs> did a lot of studies there I was part of like collecting the data and doing the research collecting literature and uh, that kind of turned into researching um, perception like how do we perceive sound and vision and um, how do we create? Creativity was another big part of that. So one of the things they would do is they would look at, you know, people who use their mouth uh, the best are gonna be like 
singers, you know? So that's where the music came into this. We would look at like the people who are like the most proficient at using those structures in the brain and then compare those to people who are like, you know, really struggling or needed, you know, therapy. And, um, and then it kind of started turning into like, okay, well, what about, you know, other musicians and what do we know about how other musicians, uh, you know, participate in motor learning, you know, and, um, it all kind of comes back to like the way information travels through the brain. Like if it's like kind of going into the brain or if it's like coming out of the brain. And so it's, it all applies to like marketing as well. So. <laughs> Absolutely. I used to stick people in um, functional MRI machines and show them different pictures and tell them stories or have them read a story and see how that information is processed um, and what the best way to get that emotional response from someone is. Um, and it varies based on your culture and your gender and your age and the activities in which you find pleasurable um, and create that baseline for you. So anytime I have an opportunity to geek out with someone about what's going on in the brain, I absolutely love it. So that's <laughs> fascinating because music is one of those things that creates that deep emotional connection, same as storytelling. Yes. And I love... I love that you come to that I, you you come to that beautiful space in psychology from both education and from music which is so powerful. So yeah. when you're talking about singers being proficient at motor moving of mouth, mm -hmm. let's make this as basic as possible, are you looking also at like saxophone players who are also have like digital function and also looking at I guess, like percussionists who are moving more like larger muscles, like, is, is that where your research ended up going? Yeah, well, the, um, while I was there, they were working on grants to kind of pursue more research. And so I know the one they were working on at the time, they were starting to look more at creativity. And I guess learning how like, um, they were going to look at jazz musicians because the, the doctor was also a jazz musician too. And so um, I think what their intent was to see was like, okay, well, let's say, you know, you're so proficient that you can like, you know, create movement off the bat. Like there's no planning behind it um, or very less planning behind it. Um, what does that creative process look like in the brain? And so, you know, that actually led me to um, develop frameworks for teaching kids with ADHD because they're given their um, situation um, they just have a lower level of inhibition, but that's exactly where you are when you're in that creative space. And so using that creative, you know, using those creative strengths, you can actually help them to focus really hard on something when they're interested in it, obviously, um, but help them to focus more and get more out of lessons when you allow them to be creative. And so, so I got a little bit off topic, but <laughs> no, I love it. I love it. I, so I used to do outdoor education and it was all about giving kids the experiential um, way of learning and just teaching them how to build shelters and start fires, for example. Like that is the number one thing that parents are like, absolutely not. But <laughs> turns out to be one of the most impactful ways of learning because we're playing to their strengths. We're playing to their curiosities and we're giving them the tools they need in order to do something that deep down inside they want to be able to do. So I can only imagine our, our kids who are struggling with concentration issues and, and with attention issues, deep down, we know as educators that that music is going to have an incredible impactful effect on their concentration, on their ability to express themselves. But we need to get over that first hurdle of 
giving getting them the skills they need in order to express themselves in that way what what did you find that obstacle was or or how did you address that obstacle um well i would say it's different for every kid <laughs> but i would say that um and, and it depends on the family too because i've seen families where they're like very open and open to like you know giving them the space they need and then some families where they they, they really want to put their kids in a box like they had an expectation for how their kid would be and so they they just put a lot of pressure on them to you know participate in music in a certain way and it's and so it's a, a lot of times, and you probably learned with teaching too, that a lot of times the challenge is not the student, but it's the parent and getting them to understand like, no, this is the approach, <laughs> you know? And so um, I would say it's a lot of things, a little bit of nature, a little bit of nurture, but um, I think uh, an, another important thing is just that like, if they're not at like at all interested in music, letting them be creative is not gonna unlock that. <laughs> you know, it's like first, the interest has to be there first almost. So that's, you know, definitely a, a linchpin. <laughs> <laughs> I would definitely say um, the, the thing that got me over a lot of those first obstacles, as you say, it is every kid is different. Every day with every kid is going to be different depending on the situation. And that's the same with us as adults as we're trying to learn and as we're trying to market to our products to people. We have to recognize that everyone is going to be uniquely positioned when that message reaches their ears. And so for me, when I'm thinking about my, my students and my kids and my babies, um, it's, it's communicating. It's communicating with the student and it's communicating with the parent. So from a marketing perspective, it's making sure that your messaging is tied tightly to providing that solution and communicating that to the person who you want to purchase, but also in a way that allows them to transfer that communication to their loved ones who they might need to justify their purchase to, for example. What do you, what do you think about that? I think that's definitely true. And uh, that's kind of our, our thing with neuromarketing is just like, it sounds really complex and scary. People don't like the word neuro because <laughs> uh, I think it's been sold. It's used, been used as a hot button to sell a lot of trash and neuromarketing is not trash. <laughs> it's not manipulation. It's not brain control. Like I've heard all these ridiculous things like people are like, we really don't understand it, but what it is, it's just a really simple way of talking to the brain. Like knowing that this is how the brain works and these are the messages that get through to these parts of the brain, the way the brain processes that information, you can present the information in the way that like breaks down properly, right? So like, you know, uh, I, I did an episode on my show recently where we talked about like mistakes that I see people making like on their websites, for instance. And one is like um, using too much words, like that I get it. You're an expert. You've got a ton of value. You want to share how knowledgeable and how much of an expert you are. But if the page is like just solid words, like my brain has shut off. <laughs> and, um, and so like kind of having a strategic way of mixing that in with pictures and what kind of pictures and who's in the picture and where is their face pointing and, um, and uh, making sure that if you, you can't avoid using copy, but making sure that when you use copy, it's the right kind, that it's not too complex and you use it in the right formula. You know, um, you want to establish your claim, um, acknowledge like their pain, and then uh, show them what the game is, and then make sure that all of that stuff is delivered in a way that reaches the old brain. Yep. 
Absolutely. We've talked about the old brain on the show before, you guys. <laughs> that lizard brain, not at the top of our brain where we're actually doing our thinking. It's that deep down part of our brain where ultimately when we're trying to teach people, we want that information to be able to sift and filter itself down so it becomes a habit. And it's those deeper parts of our brain where those habits live. Oh, yes. I think it's absolutely fascinating. So let's talk about jargon for a bit, because I love that you talk about when your website, when you're looking at someone's website, that first time people are looking at your brand, maybe this is the first place they're going to go to get that information on you. They want quick information. So as you say, don't fill it up with text. Don't fill it up with jargon, but there's a place for that jargon. And that's the place I think is so cool is that so many times when people are using these psychological tricks or these psychological techniques in their marketing, they're not going deep enough to understand that there's a, a in front of the gate and a behind the gate aspect to it. So I like to talk about jargon a lot because when you're trying to build that deeper connection with your community on the back end, once people have bought into your world, that's a different story. Now you want to use that jargon because it becomes that collective conversation within your community, creating again, that divide between the us versus them, the in crowd and the out crowd. But it's so important, as you say, that in that first viewing of you, that first website, you can't overload them with information. It's too right. much. So what what would a tip be if someone's looking at their website right now, they're listening and they're going, uh-oh, let's do a quick audit. What's one big thing that they should be looking at and making sure that they're communicating as impactfully as they can to that brand new audience? Yeah, well, I would use that formula, the claim, pain, gain, and then old brain is kind of like the process, but those three things and make sure like whatever you're feature, featuring on that homepage that like, it's the best, it's the most simple, it's the easiest to look at. Uh, it's very like, um, like graphically like broken down, right? Like if, if it's all words, no. <laughs> if there's like shapes in there or graphics at least to kind of like create some division, yes, okay. <laughs> and then uh, images of yourself, especially in the coaching industry, um, I think one of the very first things that should be on your page is your face. And um, another, <laughs> another thing to avoid is though, is like using your face too much. Um, I think that can become overwhelming. Like uh, the, the reason we want to use faces is because of the oldest part of the brain is uh, triggered by faces. Like we're attracted to faces. That's how we evolved to survive was to connect with other humans, but it's so connected to faces that if we're looking at, if there's too many faces on there, it's going to be distracting from what's really important. And so um, I might like one, two tops, <laughs> two faces tops. And so, um, and then the last thing is yeah, like just keep it as simple as possible on that front page. It's kind of like um, window shopping, right? Like mm. you have like three different types of windows. Okay, there's the one where everything's like, just like all the clothes is on a rack. Like that's a ton of clothes. You can't tell it apart. It's just too hard to distinguish. Like that looks like a nice color, but I don't even know if is that a dress, is it a top, whatever. But then there's the one where there's a lot of clothes there, but it's all in a pile. And it's just like very confusing. It's ugly. I don't even want to look at it. <laughs> and, then, and then there's the one that's like really dressed like Macy's on in New York City. It's all on uh, mannequins. They have little fake dogs in there. It's like they paint a picture. You know, that's the store you want to walk into, right? And so your website is the same way. If the stuff is, you know, all in a pile, it doesn't make sense. Nobody's going to look at it. 
if it's like on a rack, but there's just a ton of it, we can't parse it out. Nobody's going to stay there for long. But if you really paint a picture and make things as simple and like create a vision, that's, that's where they're going to walk in, you know? Oh, I love that. I love that. Okay, guys. So here's the visual for today. One, are you the pound store? We have a store here in Toronto where you literally buy clothes by the pound. They've never been washed. They might have holes in them. Sometimes you don't really want to look at them long enough to actually figure that out. So you, you buy them by the pound. Are you the pound store? Are you piles of clothes? Or are you a really well-organized rack of clothes where you can kind of understand maybe the color palette question mark maybe the length of the garment question mark but you really can't make a decision based on what you're looking at there it's kind of nice to look at but you kind of want to keep walking right if that's your store window or are you macy's are you a destination that people are going to want to go because that story that you're telling on your page resonates with them well, I've told you the answer of where you should be. So your homework today, guys, is to figure out what your page looks like. Are you the pound store? Are you just whatever store? Or are you Macy's? Okay, that's your homework. <laughs> <laughs> All right, now let's talk about ah, marketing. I love marketing. So let's talk about messaging and, and text and, and actual words that we're using. Is there, are there certain words that we should never be using in our headlines or are there certain words that we definitely should be and we're not using enough? I would say avoid longer syllable words. <laughs> too many syllables uh, means your language is getting too, might be too jargon heavy, might be too complex. And uh, we got to remember that the old brain is so old it doesn't process language. And so the only words that are going to make it in there are going to be the most simple, like more money. That'll get to the old brain because that's going to trigger an emotion. That's going to trigger a really strong response. Um, and so the most basic language possible, are, like if you can avoid like three or four syllable words, avoid them. <laughs> Keep it as simple as possible. And um, I also advise being heavy on like, you know, we talk about like in, in our super secret club <laughs> about making the, um, making the visitor the hero. And so uh, avoid using the word I, talking about yourself. Nobody cares, <laughs> but we want them to be the hero. So putting the word you in there or creating messaging around like their situation from their perspective, that's going to be a lot more, that's going to kind of reach the inner brain more than like, you know, talking about how awesome you are, which there, there's a place for that, but there's a way to do it so that it's not so, it doesn't lose engagement, you know? <laughs> yeah, I know for sure. I have been guilty of too many I statement headlines and I watched my analytics just drop. <laughs> and the second you real, like it's a, it's a hard place to be when you realize that the reason your business is growing is not because of you as the personality. You're like, but you're supposed to be an attractive hero or, a, you know, what? So it's not about I statements. It's about you as the hero leading your people by example to the promised land in, in an easy way to, to say it. You are showing them the life that they want. You're a few steps ahead of them and you're opening that door. It does not need, need to be done through I statements. You're painting them a picture. You're not giving them a selfie. Yes. <laughs> exactly. So when it comes to uh, people's marketing in general, what do you think is the worst thing that people are doing or trends that we saw in 2020 that need to go? 
Um, let's see, some things that pop into my mind right away are like the, the tough love trend, which is not bad, but I've seen some headlines that are like, you're wasting your time or you're like, they're, they're leading with like an insult almost. And it's like, whoa, whoa, hey, <laughs> I don't know if I even want to go to help for you. If like the first thing that comes out of your mouth is kind of like derogatory, I'm like, I'm out, you know, <laughs> I don't really want to hear the rest of that. Um, <laughs> and so even if like everything that came after that was like pure gold, that first line just puts you at such a disadvantage. It's so ugly. And so, um, the tough love trend, I would say, is one. Um, the other one, kind of like what I was saying before, is just like talking about yourself too much or putting yourself as the, you know, star of your page too much. Like I see this a lot on Instagram, like coaches, like every single post is like a super cute photo of them. And it's like, I get it. You're cute. That's adorable. But chill out. Like, <laughs> like you've got more value than that. And like, you know, some of the things, some of the posts I know I've saved don't have a picture of anyone in them, but they're like really high quality graphics, like high value content, uh, diagrams, you know, flow charts, whatever. Um, that stuff is really valuable too. And um, I would say maybe another problem is, and this might be more for like coaches starting out is, and I think it's perpetuated by other coaches who are selling this as a solution is thinking like, oh, I can just show up online and create a course and become a millionaire. It's like, hold on. <laughs> People don't know who you are, that you don't have a presence. Um, why would they buy something from a stranger, you know? And, you know, also like just showing up and thinking like, oh, I, I like they are the, they are an expert that there's that's not a problem that, that they don't know enough but that they haven't established a presence online and so you know there are experts who have already established a presence online and you know, not understanding that competition before you you know venture down that road is puts them at a really big disadvantage and so that's those are the trends i've noticed at least <laughs> so the one trend i'm yeah one of the trends i'll give you three one trend that I definitely saw in 2020 and previous that I'm so over in 2021 is fake blue check marks um, and people trying to establish their authority, um, recognizing that, yeah, a, a quickly changing your um, profile photo to have this fake blue check mark on it is a way of tricking people who are watching into thinking that you have a verified check mark that's part of the platform that you're on and it's the integrated way of establishing authority on a specific platform so mm -hmm. i get i get where people are going where it's a real quick hit to like a graphic recognition hit where i know what that symbol means so for those of you who who aren't brain brain geeks like we are mm -hmm our brain tries to simplify things as much as possible so that it doesn't get overloaded. So when you see a, a graphic, for example, when you see someone's profile photo with a blue check mark beside it more than once, your brain will start to file that as, these look the same, I recognize what that meaning is, so I'm gonna establish that meaning to every time I see that blue check mark, for example. So even when that blue check mark ends up not having the same meaning, on the system you're using, your brain is still going to create that simplified understanding and attach that meaning to it. So it's a quick psychological trick that marketers have been doing for a long time, but I am so sick of it. 
And that ties to my second thing. This thing I am so sick of from 2020 is the word authentic, even though, yes, I agree with the sentiment behind it that we need to show up as ourselves. But the word authentic I find is so overused. I'm going to leave that one in 2020. And instead, I'm going to jump in to the idea of showing up raw and showing up as who I am, but also in alignment with my brand, my messaging and and where I want to take my community. So that's number two. And number three, I had a number three, but now I'm forgetting my number three. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah. You, so you were talking about people just starting thinking that they can become millionaires by putting a course together. And yes, they might be experts, but they might not have the marketing down. I also wanna add to that, that they might be horrible teachers, <laughs> yes. period. <laughs> I think 2020, when everyone ended up in lockdown and we started going online and we started watching our kids learning from home in this new space, I think a lot of people started to see that pedagogy and, and the idea of knowing how to teach or teaching as an art, teaching as a skill is I think we realized the importance of that in 2020. So I hope in 2021, people turn their eye to people who know more about teaching and actually look at how do we communicate that message, not only from one person to another, but as we mentioned previously in this discussion, everyone is different, not just our kids with ADD who are learning music for the first time. Every single person is different in what they're passionate about, what they're motivated by. Literally how our brains are wired is different based on the experiences we've had. So I would love in 2021, if more course creators and marketers and experts and speakers focused on building up their teaching skills and communication skills so that we can get the best, most high impact teaching available. What do you think to that? Yeah, that's definitely a big one too. It's like, I've spent a lot of money on courses and I've spent a lot of like 10 years in school, like psychology and teaching and stuff like that. And I take these courses, I'm like, this is bad. I'm not learning anything. Like, you know, it's like, I'd say the two biggest mistakes I see is like, videos like this, where it's just them talking and talking and talking, there's no like graphic representation, there's no workbook, or there's very little talking and it's all workbook. Yep. And uh, it's, you know, and also just like, it comes down to everything. Like, it's not just you pop stuff into the modules, but the modules need to go in a certain order. There needs to be reinforcement, you know, it's like, there's, I feel like there's no accountability for providing reinforcement. I think that's a big one because yeah. no reinforcement means no retention. And you exactly. Know. And then like the question is the age old question as educators is how do we create assessments that are actually going to be representative of the learning our students have. So for those non educator geeks that pretty much means how do we create tests or proof that our student has actually learned this information. So in order to tease that out, you have to ask what does it mean to learn? What does it mean to acquire a skill? How do you prove that you've acquired a skill? How can you show that and test that in different situations? And it just becomes so complex. And then you step back and you say, okay, we're in the realm of adult education. We don't need to have grades. We don't need to sit within that formalized nor like normal school system, right? Where you have to have assessments at the end of the year to prove the grade and bring it back to the education ministry, whatever. But it, with, when we're dealing with adults, people who are personally um, motivated to learn those skills in our courses, 
how do we make sure that we are we are lovingly holding their hand through the course, allowing them to get the experience, to learn the information, but how do we test to make sure that they have actually gained that information in the long run? So I'm I'm really curious to see how people are doing that. And well, part of our secret society that we're part of, um, our, our amazing coach talks about creating challenges and levels and opportunities throughout the learning experience to practice and to prove those learnings module by module, as opposed to just letting your students go through the whole course and yeah. then just waiting for the money to hit your bank account. And I think that's not going to lead us towards having impactful um, educational experiences. It's going to lead to ruining, I think, the whole world of coaching online. Um, if more people are producing crap content, it's going to start making those of us who are creating incredible, impactful content, it's going to start making us look like crap. So yeah, thanks for I listening to my TED talk. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think that's a big one too, is like learning by doing, right? Rather than just like, listen to me, talk about how you do this, like give them the assignment to do it. And then uh, also like gamifying learning. Like I know that one, especially for kids and even like uh, I'm taught in, in the college level for a while, like I was like, no way they're gonna be up to participating in a game. They're gonna be like, this is dumb. They loved it. They, it made practicing like the most boring stuff, like so engaging and so much more fun. So if you can work a game into your course, like that's it. Oh man, <laughs> I was going through my research uh, because I'm diving back deep into all of the functional MRIs stuff that I used to do and, and all of this neurology stuff. So I'm going through all my university textbooks and all my research and stuff like this. And I came across my old course readers from the first few years of university when, when I was so organized, I would write the whole syllabus down. I would say, all right, it says there's three readings. So I gave myself three check boxes. And in order to like prove that I was doing well, I would give myself stickers like gold stars you do in kindergarten for kids. <laughs> well, that worked so well for me in kindergarten. I was quite successful apparently on my report cards that I transferred that over to what I was doing in university apparently. And I literally gave myself stickers for all of my readings, but that is as simple as you could be if you want to gamify the experience is just formatting your syllabus in a different way. Same words. Now it's just looks different and it gives me the student the ability to then track my progress in a way that pushes me to be more motivated to complete things. And it's those simple little understandings that people aren't taking into consideration when they're developing their programs or their courses. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> oh, I love it. Well, we have to start wrapping this up. So before we go, do you have any last words for everyone? Where can they find you? How can they get into your world? Uh, well, I'm on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, uh, Microcosmic Marketing on all three. And um, <clears throat> I, we're, our website is under construction. It should be done. Uh, well, no, by the time this airs, it'll be done. <laughs> but uh, something special that we're doing to kind of celebrate the reband and the start of our new year is uh, we're basically doing free marketing strategies. Like, uh, and it's limited spaces. There's an application to fill out, but if you're good to go, then we will go through that process. We'll audit your presence online and give you some suggestions for like what can be better, what some suggestions for what you can do and how you can like stand out from the market, position yourself uh, in an irresistible way and just create a bigger impact and influence on the world. 
Oh man, that is, that is powerful. So my friends, if you are ready to make 2021 the most impactful year for your business, I would recommend checking out the links in the description box because a marketing consultation like that is so valuable. Not only is Victoria a brilliant marketer, as we've discussed, she's also a brilliant educator and she's also a neuroscientist. So you're not just getting a branding audit, my friend. You're not just getting a marketing audit. You're getting so much more. So go click those links in the description box. Thank you, Victoria, so, so much for coming on the Lifelong Show. It's been a pleasure. Super fun. (laughs) Awesome. We're going to have you back for sure because this season of the Lifelong Podcast is all about the psychology of marketing. And uh, I think think we can uh, can figure out a couple topics we could get deep into. For sure. (laughs) (laughs) For those of you listening at home, thank you so much. If you're watching on YouTube, make sure that you like and subscribe. If you are listening on your favorite podcast platform, consider uh, rating us, subscribing, liking, sharing it with your friend, writing a really awesome review, or really just leaving an emoji as of a review. That works too. (laughs) I appreciate you guys spending this part of your day with us today. It's been an absolute pleasure. I know I've learned a lot and I hope you have too. Guys, thank you so much for joining us. I will see you again on the next episode. And until then, remember, I love you and be excellent to each other.